welcome to Movie Maker Interviews. My name is Tim Malloy, and this episode is a great one for anyone who has ever written a simple story and dreamt that that simple story might be spun off into a series of movies, games, playing cards, animated holiday specials, you know, the whole George R.R. R. Martin. Our guest is Alex Amancio, who is going to discuss the concept of Story World. It would be cool to put some echo on there. Um, I'm probably not going to do it. Story World is the idea that you aren't just creating a single story, but a world in which that story takes place. Star Wars is very good at it. John Wick is very good at it. And video games are very good at it, which is why Alex is such a good person to introduce this concept, which, uh, as far as I understand, he created. He writes about it in the new issue of Movie Maker Magazine coming out soon. Alex is the former creative director at Ubisoft, where he worked on the world-building game Assassin's Creed. He's also the CEO and co-founder of Reflector Entertainment, and he's the chief creative officer of Luna Rouge, working with the founder of Cirque du Soleil, Guy Laliberté. Now, you just heard a lot of French mispronunciations. Funny story, I was the president of my high school French club, but I speak almost zero French. The reason I became the president of my high school French club is that I promised to make my friend Pedro the vice president, and he pulled in the crucial Latino vote, which was a very powerful voting block at my high school, San Pedro High, Go Pirates. And this is the point where we go from a story to a story world, because as you can see, this isn't just the story of one unscrupulous student politician. Now it's the story of one unscrupulous student politician, his partner in crime, Pedro, uh, Pedro's French-Spanish army. Amanda, the excellent French speaker I defeated for the French club president, who sought revenge by dating my brother for several years, making her whole family fall in love with her, and then marrying an FBI agent. But it's okay because we also love my brother's wife, who speaks even more languages than Amanda. The point of this story is that every single person mentioned so far would have been a much, much better French club president than me. And now you can all understand the concept of a story world. I'm sorry, what's that? I've explained it. Very poorly. Tu ne comprends pas. Or for the uninitiated, you don't understand. Uh, Full disclosure, my wife told me how to say that in French because she also speaks better French than me. Do you like when you're watching a movie that is set in, you know, maybe Peru, but it's 99% in English, and then they throw in three words of Spanish, like as a little, you know, a little bone to the Spanish viewers who are probably watching the whole thing going like, nope. No idea what's going on here. And then they're like, Plaza de Armas. And then they're like, I'm in. I'm locked in. I totally follow this now. It all comes together. I don't like when movies do that. It feels like pandering. No me gusta. I hope you agree. Anyway, Hollywood, you should stop doing that. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, you should stop doing that. Uh, Anyway, none of you have any idea what I'm talking about or what a story world is. So here is Alex Amancio to explain it much, much better. So to start, uh, how has your life changed in the last few last few days, last few weeks? Considerably. Um, first, <laughs> I've been spending a lot more time at home. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, adapting to um, it's funny how uh, adapting to um, you know telecommuting is has changed everything. I mean, if one thing, I think people were were before this whole situation might have thought that, uh, you know, working from home, you're more relaxed, you're, you know, you're in your home element, you have a lot of distractions. But I, I think that what we've been noticing these past weeks is that 
if anything, it's the polar opposite. I think that um, rather than having a lot of distractions, because you're always, you're at home, you're in your one element, you're always working. Um, it's, yeah. it's um, people forget to take breaks. Uh, people forget to just, uh, you know, take a coffee break or just go to the water cooler and talk because there is no water cooler. I mean, I imagine the game that you played a huge role in creating, Assassin's Creed, is keeping a lot mm -hmm. of people sane um, just because it is like the break time. It is the time to sort of stop thinking about their reality and thinking about something else. Have you been playing a lot of games lately? Have you been doing anything to kind of get, get out of your head? I have. Um, and uh, it's funny because since we're, we're stuck uh, physically at home, um, you know, games offer this amazing opportunity to, to, you know, not only to like, you know, films and, and TV, it, it lets you escape. Um, it sort of transports you in a, in a roller coaster sort of, you know, linear kind of way into, into other worlds and characters, but the, the games can literally let you have agency there. So it's a way to travel outside of your home, uh, even if you are confined. So I, I think that not only myself, but I, I think a lot of like people, my friends have been talking to me about all of the games that they hadn't, haven't had time to play last year. They've been catching up. I certainly have been catching up on, on games. Um, funny, funny as well. I have a lot of Assassin's Creed fans that have been contacting me um, through Twitter uh, to sort of like, if I was available to play with them um, um, <laughs> co-op online. So uh, to, to revisit the game, the world uh, of Assassin's Creed Unity, for example, in co-op mode with them. So it's, it's, um, it's fun. Oh, wow. I feel like gamers, I'm not a gamer. I'm the worst video game player in the world. Um, I've been passing the time playing Dr. Mario, which should tell you <laughs> where I'm at. Uh, that game is like 30 years old. Um, but my brother is a huge gamer, and it, I think he's kind of better prepared for the situation we find ourselves in now because he's constantly on his headphones, you know, shit-talking with a kid in, you know, Mozambique. Um someone halfway around the world. Have you found that there's like a sense of community that's continued? Oh yeah, for sure. I think that, uh, that, that you know, video gamers have always been um, a very tight knit group. And I think this has done um, just, it's just been reinforcing that, right? Uh, people that for a lot of these younger kids, I mean, they already, most of their social network or, or friend network is already online. It's already, um, you know, filtered through the, the games that they play. So I think that this is only, for them, it's almost like it's transparent, right? Um, it's almost like a, a perfect situation of having more time to just spend uh, in the world that they already like visiting and with the people that they already know. Yeah. Did you play with fans before, or is that something that you started doing recently? It's just recent, um, because I think that now everybody essentially finds themselves synchronized because they're all at home at the same time, and... Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think it, it just put a lot of, a lot of, um, I think a lot of people have really turned to video games in this time. I think it's a, it's a, it is a very good way to escape. I mean, don't you have a ridiculous advantage over anybody you're playing with? Just because... <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. Um, thing is, uh, I've, I've made the game and, uh, you know, during production, I played it, um, you know, hours and hours every day to just, uh, you know, to, to, to get a sense for it and, and to, to you know, find bugs and tweak stuff. But, you know, after that, I sort of went on to something else. I, I, it's always, it's always a nostalgic experience for me to revisit the world that I helped create. But for fans, some of them had they've been playing this, you know, nonstop for the last few years. So you'd be surprised how, how, 
proficient fans can be and how challenging it can be to play with or against them. <laughs> how many fans have you played <laughs> with? Uh, maybe a handful. That's really cool. When you're playing with fans, do you get any feedback from them? Do they ever say, I really like this part of the game, I wish this part were different? I mean, it happens very rarely. Most of the times what I get as feedback is people uh, will ask me about theories they have or uh, you know, about a character or about a, a plot line or about something that was maybe suggested and they, they, they like weave this complex theory around it. Uh, you know, the world of Assassin's Creed is a very complex one with a lot of different uh, you know, overlapping factions and across timelines and historical figures all intertwined. So, so there is a lot of room there for um, interpretation, but there's also a lot of stuff that we tease and don't necessarily follow up on, not out of um, not because we forgot, because sometimes we, we want fans to sort of figure things out for themselves and to have theories. So that's most of the times. Yeah, like I, I've had a fan ask me recently um, uh, about a theory uh, related to one of the characters um, in the uh, Assassin's Creed Unity DLC about a character that might or might not be um, the mother of the protagonist. And yes. when that fan asked that question on Twitter, uh, a few other fans um, you know, followed back with, you know, we had that theory as well. And um, yeah, so, so um, it, it's a very, I think uh, the Assassin's Creed community is a very active and a very intelligent and proactive community. And um, it, it's a really fun, um, it, it's really fun to, to debate ideas with them. So can you talk about your company, Reflector, and what Reflector does mm -hmm. and sort of your vision of storytelling, which I think starts with Assassin's Creed and what you did there, but extends mm -hmm. to potentially changing everything about how we think about story? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, the idea certainly came from the time when I was working on Assassin's Creed. Uh, one thing that I that I very soon realized when I came on to the, um, to the IP was that what we were creating was essentially a lot bigger than just games. Um, I, I felt that we were really weaving together a modern day mythology and uh, myth has been something that has been ever present in, in the human journey since the dawn of time. It's something that we, that we as a species, we need to, to guide us through, through, um, you know, hard times. It's something that, that, um, allows us to not only through hard times, um, you know, from a social standpoint or a sociological standpoint, but also even a personal standpoint, right? It's how we deal with uh, the different um, passages that we go through in our lives, you know, be it the passage from um, childhood into adulthood or, you know, the loss of somebody. So myth is, is, has been prevalent in society since the dawn of time. And I think that today's modern myths are told through, um, the IPs that we, the universes that we weave. Um, and I was, I really felt that Assassin's Creed had something that was resonating with people uh, on that level. It was about, uh, you know, free will. It was about a lot of these different subject matters that um, would become more and more important as society, um, you know, keeps advancing. And so um, when I came on board, um, I realized that we were working on a lot of different products that weren't the video game. And there was an IP team that was set up in Montreal that sort of spearheaded that. And one of the first things that I did is that I really began collaborating a lot with them. Uh, I felt that they were not a side team. I felt that they were actually a central team. I, I felt that they, they were the, um, uh, they should, they should be the, um, the, the conductors of the symphony that we were creating. And, and, you know, the game was just one section of that. Um, so when making the first game, I really, uh, collaborate. The, the first thing I made on Assassin's Creed, I, I really collaborated very closely with them to uh, to sort of make sure that everything that we were weaving um, across all other products was really integrated into the game. 
So we had, um, you know, novels come out at the same time as Assassin's Creed Revelations, you know, one about Ezio, uh, his journey, um, getting, you know, the, the parts of the story that weren't told in the game, you know, his journey from Italy to Constantinople. We had another one about Altair, Altair's secret crusade. It was all about Altair's um, quest, uh, you know, after the video game, what happened to Altair? What, what, what is his quest, his mission, the knowledge that he was guarding? And essentially, because Revelations was about those two characters, uh, Ezio and Altair, um, it was this, the, the two novels served as a bridge um, to the video game. And it, it showed, they showed a little bit about their journey before the game, but also the connection. It, it really reinforced the connection between these two characters, or I should say the contrast between these two characters. Um, and then we, we, we collaborated with, uh, with the IP team also for the comic book. We, we actually even did <clears throat> a pilot for an animated Assassin's Creed TV show that we did internally. We wanted to create um, uh, sort of a spinoff into the Ezio passing the torch to a new assassin. Uh, oh, she, wow. was a, she was a, a Chinese assassin. And we ended, up, um, we ended up shipping all of that with the game. So when Revelations was released, um, it, we even had a spinoff game that was set within the simulated world of the Animus. So um, there, was, there was a lot of stuff that was released uh, simultaneously with with Assassin's Creed Revelations, and I really think that that struck a chord with fans. I really think that fans really started seeing this as more than just a series of games, but as a as an unfolding, um, <clears throat> not puzzle, but an unfolding mythology that was happening across different platforms. And we really saw a, an increase in the way that the the universe was resonating with fans all over the planet. People were starting to see this as not just a video game franchise, but as um, uh, an entertainment franchise. Um, and so that really started me thinking, you know, like maybe there, maybe there is something to this. And uh, I, I started looking at other, at other areas of business, um, you know, companies like, um, I mean, this is a, it's a super easy example and most people know it, but it's still an interesting one to quote. I mean, if you look at Kodak, how Kodak went from being, you know, number one in the world to being bankrupt in a few years, right? Um, Kodak always viewed themselves as a uh, film company, right? They produced because most of their revenue was, was through film. Um, you know, people, people would, even before the instant photos, people would actually mail their, their film to Kodak and Kodak would send back pictures and that's how they made most of their money. So when they invented the, the digital camera, right, they, they didn't even realize that they had just um, made themselves obsolete. So had Kodak viewed themselves as an image company, right, the, the overarching idea of what they were creating, instead of looking at um, their business through the lens of a medium, they would have survived because the medium is finite. You know, mediums come and go um, with time, but the core is always there. People are always going to want to share images, right? Um, same thing with uh, with Blockbuster, right? They had a chance to buy Netflix early on for very, very little money, but they saw themselves as a rental place for VCRs and for DVDs and Blu-rays instead of seeing themselves as providers of, of licensed content. So had they seen themselves as that, they would have survived. They would have become um, Netflix. So the video game industry or any entertainment industry, I think, is similar, right? People see themselves typically as uh, through, through the lens of the, of the medium they create rather than looking at what their business actually is, which is story, mm -hmm. its characters and its mythology. So I started thinking about what would a company look like if you were to build it from the ground up 
not looking at last century's models, you know, where, where to get to customers, you needed to go through channels, which is why companies are media companies, right? To, to get to customers, either go through, um, you know, book distribution or television distribution or film distribution. And once you get into that slot, that's what you do because you're, you're, you're being defined by that. But in the world of today, with all of these walls of distribution just collapsing and merging, fans can today get access to content um, without having these rigid middle um, businesses, right? These, these middle channels. So the idea is what if, what if you built a company with that in mind, with this new reality in mind, and if you were to provide uh, customers with story and fans with story rather than, than, than providing them with, with medium, you know, what if medium was just the, the, the side product, wasn't the main product? So that's yeah. what Reflector is. It's how Reflector came about. You know, as a person, I think you're very familiar with people from the video game world crossing over to other forms of media. I mean, that's really what you're promoting Mm -hmm. is how do we turn this video game into a podcast, into novels, into TV Mm -hmm. shows. I kind of go the other way. I consume every other type of media except for video games. Um, Mm -hmm. I think Mm -hmm. partly because I have terrible hand-eye coordination and part of it is Mm -hmm. I feel like I'm going through long stretches of nothing happening and then long stretches of too much happening and Mm -hmm. I get kind of... Um, the pace feels off to me. And so yep. do you think that, I, I, I think if I, mm-hmm. this, isn't, this isn't a problem of video games. This is a problem of me and mm-hmm. that I'm not really able to get myself into the story. Are there ways mm-hmm. to sort of invite more people in by changing the ways that video games mm-hmm. tell stories? Yes. Um, and and th- there's a few things there that, that are very interesting in what you said. So <clears throat> firstly, I, I don't believe in adapting a video game to a film or vice versa. I think Hmm. that that always ends up in creating mediocrity. Um, Hmm. I think that in the best case scenario, you create something that is a pale comparison uh, of of the source material. So Hmm. the difference between transmedia and and licensing or or even cross-platform is that when you're creating transmedia, you have to look at the product through the lens of the medium right? You know how I said that the medium is secondary? Well, that's when you're looking at it through the business perspective, right? It should be secondary. Your first business should be the story and the world that you're building. However, when you're looking at your product, you have to look at it through the lens of the medium because that's what your your scaffolding is. This is what you're building something onto, right? So a film, I don't think makes a good video game and vice versa. I don't think a novel makes a good film. Novels are internal stories. You can, you can literally get into a character's head, which is difficult in film unless you add some awkward voiceover, right? Right, um, right. You know, films are visual, visual mediums. In a novel, you can certainly describe the environment, right? But that's not what that medium is good for. It's good, it's good for, for psychological, you know, like for, for really to get into a, to a character's head. So building... Uh, building a transmedia studio or building a transmedia story world, it's more about let's create a world. Let, this world has its rules. It's got its specific rules. It's got to be unique rules. It's got its set of characters. It's got its timeline, um, all of that stuff. And the, the, the world that you're creating is essentially uh, themed around, um, you know, important values that are unique to it. In the, in the, in, in, um, in perspective of Assassin's Creed, it's, it's about this duality between these two opposing forces. Um, it's one is about free will. The other one is for control. In essence, mm-hmm. both are right and both are wrong. 
if you give too much freedom, it's chaos, right? If you don't have laws, it, you know, we, we'd still be hitting ourselves over the head with sticks. But if you have too much control, rigidity, then you have stagnation. You have something that is a totalitarian society, you know, where people are pre-programmed to do X, Y, and Z. And it's just, you know, you become machines. You're just like cogs in a machine. So yeah. somewhere in the middle, there's maybe, you know, this perfect uh, zone for, for thriving of humanity. So that's what Assassin's Creed is about. Like, if you understand that this is what that the world is about, well, when you're doing a game, well, think of a story that is a video game story that fits within the framework of that world and those values, and right. then that has characters that are there for the service of that story. If you're going right. to create a film, well, same same applies, but you use the roles, the, the rules of the film world. And if you're doing a film and you use the rules of the game world, if you're doing a game, you shouldn't adapt. That's not what you should be adapting. So, so that's the first part of the question. I think that, that, that adapting is always a mistake. I think mm -hmm. that it should be complementary. And I think that they should be standalone. I, I think these stories on different media should be complementary. Now, to answer the second part of your, of your point, which is, you know, you can't connect to games. It's, it's uh, something is off. Um, well, games are, are extremely broad. You know, right. um, you mentioned Dr. Mario earlier. You know, Dr. <laughs> Mario, and it's like, it's a good example. It's a classic. I mean, it, it is a classic. Uh, it's, it's a little bit like a Tetris kind of game, right? So right. that kind of game is very different from an Assassin's Creed game, which is an open world um, game where you can essentially explore um, a, a chunk of the world in a specific timeline and you have, you know, dozens, if not hundreds of different missions. And then you have uh, a through line with uh, a main narrative that you can follow. Right. But then even if you compare Assassin's Creed to a game like uh, Uncharted, which is a very linear experience, you know, we give you a, um, a very narrow corridor into a world and it's a lot more uh, directed than than an Assassin's Creed game. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if you like linear stories more, then you can go more towards the the type of game that the, the type of story that Uncharted tells, which is it, it's more of a controlled pacing, right? There are less um, dips in in the narrative, right? They they, they mm -hmm. take you more by the hand in terms of it's more on rails. And then you can even go further down that line, and there's games that are even a lot more. Um, um, guided, where you essentially are just, they're, they're more like walking around and following a story and, uh, and there's very, very little control or very little um, uh, leeway you have in terms of, um, you know, exploring side missions and stuff like that. So I guess what I'm saying is, you really have to find the kind of game that, that matches your expectations. Some of them require a lot of hand-eye coordination, other ones don't. Yeah. Um, you know, walking simulators, what people call walking simulators, they're more like narrative experiences. You walk around and you're sort of, it's more like a contemplative um, experience, like, um, uh, you know, Firewatch. Um, yeah. These kinds of games don't require any skill. Um, they're more, they're really more about a story being delivered. So, yeah, I think that we're still learning how to tell stories in the gaming medium. And at the same time, there's many ways of telling a story with, the, with, with video games, right? Um, so I think it's a combination of first finding the kind of game that appeals to you, and then also understanding that we're still learning how to tell stories in games, and that'll continue to evolve. So maybe it's a question of us not having reached a level of maturity that you're comfortable with as a, as a, as a fan. 
where would you put like The Last of Us? I mean, would that be kind of a guided mm-hmm. open world? It's um, <clears throat> it's more like a guide. It's more like in the lines of Uncharted. There there mm-hmm. is a little bit more. Uh, you know, they do provide you with with uh, some areas for you to explore, for you to, to to find materials to craft. But it is more of a guided experience. Um, I think actually, Last of Us is a very good example of a, a good balance between um, a very strong, well written narrative and yeah. giving you enough freedom for you to sort of walk around and and uh, and get to take in that world. Yeah, I feel that way too. That That is one game that I've played that um, really did work for me because it's very cinematic and it did seem to have, yeah. it, it certainly had a plot. It certainly had places where it wanted me to go. I could mm-hmm. go stand in a corner and walk into a wall for two hours if I wanted to, but that's certainly not encouraged. Um, exactly. So thinking about Story World, th- there's an article that you wrote for the new issue of Movie Maker about the concept of Story mm-hmm. World. What should people be doing now when they sit down to create something? I mean, if you sit down to create a script, if you sit down to create a video game, sit down to create a podcast, how can you think of that in terms of story world as opposed to just the medium that you're working in? Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so, I mean, I think that that um, there's an order to it. If you want to, if you want to just create a, a slice, I mean, but, look, let, let me put it this way. The, I think that the the act of creating a story or a story world has always been there, right? Any any writer of any medium has to define the world in which his story is set. Um, even when you're writing a script, which is a very small slice of, of uh, um, events, I mean, it can be very broad in terms of time or in terms of space, but it's very economical because you're, you know, if you're writing a, a 100 minute film, uh, every every second counts, right? Uh, and there's rules that you need to obey uh, in order for that to be coherent to an audience because of the short amount of time that you have. You know, you have a lot more freedom to be, uh, to you know, to, to to explore when you're when you're um, writing a television series. Which is not to say that it's easier. It's just it, it's a different. It, the, the challenge lies elsewhere. Right. So, taking a film for example, even even in that very constrained medium. Of, of writing a story within, um, you know, a hundred minutes or so, the writer does have to define the rules of his world, uh, his or her world. Um, they have to, they have to, um, you know, create a coherent universe. So it's this exact building a story world is that exact same mechanism, but it's creating a broader world. It's creating a broader set of rules. It's almost like I would, I would, I would compare it to if you've ever played, you know, tabletop role-playing games or D and D, it's almost like that, right? You're creating that framework, and it's it's more of that mindset. And as a dungeon master in a in, in a D and D adventure, you have to create that stuff because if people decide to go off script and improvise, you need mm-hmm. to have enough of um, a peripheral view so that you're able to follow them along it, and that you have you're able to keep it coherent. So that that essentially is the mechanism. You 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 create that framework. Um, and I think that the framework, the world that you create in order for it to be original, it has to be anchored in, in, in some ideas that are original, right. That, that feel fresh, you know, like uh, I mentioned the Assassin's Creed uh, novelty. It's, a, it's all about that duality, the free will, right. The, uh, the fine line between freedom and, uh, free will and, and control. Mm-hmm. So you have to find that because I think this is what people, whether they realize it or not consciously, this is what sort of anchors them at draws them to the world uh, at a subconscious level almost. So, and then once you have that, 
then the act of creating the story is exactly like creating, you would create a story in any medium. You essentially sit down, you look at the world that you have in front of you, you find the slice uh, of that world where the story is to be told and you just, you, you tell it within that setting, within those constraints. And if you want to add the transmedia element to it, then what you have to do is you have to think of all of the other stories that you might be telling and you have to figure out how they're interconnected, which doesn't mean um, that they're sequels, that they're, but just how, how are they, how is one story adding a different perspective to the story that you're telling uh, in, in one medium? So that way, when you start consuming all of them together, you sort of get a, a larger, almost four-dimensional picture of, of, the, of the overarching narrative. It feels like you have to be kind of a George R. R. Martin. I mean, you can't just mm. write your straightforward story. You need to be able to say, mm. well, when they cross the ocean, here's what's on the other side of that ocean. Absolutely. And, you know, the skill sets of um, the skill sets to do that and to write the, um, the actual story are different skill sets. Some people have both. And, uh, and even if, if I go even further, writing a story, some people are really good at dialogue. Some people are very good at description. Some people are very good at everything. Um, but much in that same way, some people are very good at world building. Um, and then you have people that are extremely good at telling, you know, very poignant personal stories within those worlds. So I guess that you could separate them. You know, you could have, it, it, let's say where we, we decide, you and I, we found a company tomorrow and we decide to, to, to start doing this, to start doing story worlds. Yeah. Well, the people that we might find to build a, our worlds might be different than the people that we will hire to write um, novels or games or, or TV series or films set in those worlds. The key is the collaboration. Those people have to collaborate and there has to be sort of the, uh, the, the person that plays the role of the conductor. And then you have to have very strong sections and then you have yeah. to have very, very strong individual instrument players within those sections. Oh, that's fascinating. So you might have someone who's just really good at dialogue. Yeah, you could. I mean, and that happens all the time. And I mean, look, just look at Hollywood. You know, yeah. sometimes you have a, a, an amazing script and then they get somebody that's uh, just amazing dialogist and they just go mm -hmm. over the script and tweak it. Yeah, your script doctor, your, your puncher-uppers. Absolutely. Yeah. God, that's so yeah. cool. Uh, what is Reflector working on now? Uh, so we're working on a world called Unknown Nine. And um, it's, a, it's a sprawling transmedia story world uh, that uh, spans time and space. Um, it, it's set in a real realistic world, but it is, um, there are fantastical elements, uh, elements that essentially defy reality, but it is done in a way where we really want people to, uh, to have that suspension of disbelief. You know, could this be real? Could, could the world that surround us be just a little bit more magical than we actually think that it is not yeah. because of magic, just because the nature of reality might be more than meets the eye. Um, it's something that we're working on currently. It's, it's, um, we're, we're doing a lot of different, um, stories across a slew of different media. Um, we're working on novels, comic books, podcasts, a series, um, video game, um, and a lot of digital content. I, I also believe in emerging, you know, when I mentioned earlier that, you know, sometimes media changes, right? Film doesn't yeah. exist anymore or, or almost no longer exists. Uh, but images still do. Well, much in the same way, I think that some some media are destined to be forgotten, but there's new emerging media, and we have to seize them. And uh, I believe in in digital storytelling. I think that the the digital world has provided us with um, you know dozens of new ways of telling stories and telling stories different ways. 
So we really like exploring that stuff in Reflector. So one part of Unknown Nine is 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 about um, exploring new digital ways of telling story to sort of expand the the world. You know, one of these one of the examples that you gave of a really good story world in the article that you wrote for Movie Maker is the John Wick series, where mm-hmm. the first John Wick definitely lays lays the groundwork for there to be a bigger world, and you could certainly see them branching out to several different stories that don't even have John Wick in them as you pointed out, and as they're mm-hmm. actually doing. Um, but it mm-hmm. starts off with a relatively low investment, one movie, not a super high-budget movie, very quickly put together, but very good movie, um, mm-hmm. where they could sort of test it. And if John Wick had bombed, you know, no harm, no foul. It would be mm-hmm. s- sad, but it wouldn't be the end of the world. It didn't. It mm-hmm. went the other way. It absolutely exploded and it got bigger and bigger. But mm-hmm. you can sort of take those small risks with movies, relatively small risks. It seems like when you're building a whole mm-hmm. story world, um, you could go all in on, you know, Shampoo Island mm-hmm. and then find out mm-hmm. that everybody hates Shampoo Island. I hope there's not really a game mm-hmm. called Shampoo Island because I just made that up. <laughs> so do you, um, do you have, do you do some kind of research or do you some kind of sort of mm-hmm. testing in advance to sort of test and see what mm-hmm. people will potentially latch on to? Mm-hmm. So um, that's a great question. So uh, a couple of things there. Uh, first, um, on on testing and and um, and uh, you know how do you how do you actually select the world and how do you how do you build it? So, I mean, first of all, I think that any story has to be has to come from the right place. It has to come from somebody's desire to tell it. Or if you wanna if you wanna ma- manifest the world into, into into being, I think that it has to come from that desire to manifest that world because you believe that that world has something to say, something relevant to say. Um, you know, you you can never. Well, essentially, my point is, you can never. Um, you can't decide to do something because um, you've done market research and you know it tells you that this is the kind of stuff that people want. I mean, you can do that, but I think that you you run the risk of 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 designed by, you know, by checkbox. And I think right. that that always yields something that lacks soul. Right. Um, so, so, which doesn't mean that you, 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 you can be oblivious to the market. You need to understand who your fan base is, who the market, you know, who the people are that are going to consume this. And yeah. I think that, um, that as a, as a, a fan, like any, any creator is the, are themselves fans. I think they have to keep that, the audience in mind all the time. I think that if, if you have a strong creative that is, wants to create something that, that comes from the, the heart and, uh, and the soul, but the creative also keeps the audience in mind, I think that's the best scenario. So yeah. th- that doesn't mean that whatever comes out is actually great, but it already puts a lot of chances on your side. And then as you're creating the story world, like when you create the Bible, let's say you create the story world Bible, you create... Uh, the context you start, um, you know, giving it, um, giving it life by 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 getting concept sketches and just giving giving the a little bit more, um, giving it a little bit more breath. You know, like um, you, you you essentially wrap your head around the mythology with the Bible. You wrap your head around the the look and feel of it. You draft up some characters so that people can see and feel what those characters look like in that world. I think that when you've done that you can very easily go and do uh, focus tests. Not to get, um, you know, there's, there's two ways of seeing this. One is, let's ask people what they want, which is always, I think, a bad idea. Not because people, um, you know, don't know what they want. I think that it's just that it's not 
the consumer's job to predict what they're going to like. If you ask them what they want today, they're, they're going to quote whatever they're watching or playing now. Right. And that's completely normal. It's because that's where your brain is, where your mind is. But I think that consumers are excellent at spotting something that at seeing very early on if something has potential. So if instead of asking people what they want, if instead you present them with slices of that story Bible and with, um, with characters and with visuals, and then ask them what they feel about it and what they think about the setting and the world and all that stuff, I think that the feedback you get is great. And so that gives you an indicator whether, you know, there, there is actually something there or not. And then what you do is you, you, you know, in, in these different steps of building a story world, then you go, okay, so we believe we have something there. Now we actually need to translate these high level ideas into stories that are actually great. So the truth of the matter is, if you look at the, the, the media that costs you a lot of money, yeah. film, television series, and video games, if you remove those three, everything else, be it novels, comic books, podcasts, those are relatively cheap. Actually, mm -hmm. if you were to take the budget of these things and put, put it in marketing, mm -hmm. it wouldn't give you a lot. It's a drop in the ocean compared to what you know, these big studios or these big companies drop in, in marketing campaigns. Mm -hmm. But instead of having something that essentially brings no value except um, visibility, you're actually giving fans something that adds to the world, especially mm -hmm. if you don't see them as marketing when you're creating. If you see them if you see each of them like they're actual acquisition channels, if you treat them like they are your main product, that means that you're going to be focusing on quality and not licensing it out, but on creating it internally with the same love and care that you would the media that costs you a lot of money. So my point is that if you, if you build the story world from the heart, if you then check with consumers and it's, it indicates that people definitely have a, an interest in that. And then if you, if you're smart about what you, what you create first yeah. and and if you don't create those big three all at the same time if you bet on one and then the other ones are are very cheap then you're essentially doing exactly what john wick did the only difference is and i don't know if they did it this way so i'm this is me not knowing but but you're you're doing the same thing but the only difference is you're planning ahead and the the difference between planning ahead and not planning ahead narratively. And again, maybe, maybe this is what the John Wick folks did. Uh, so um, I don't want to, I don't want to say something that, that isn't accurate, but yeah. I can tell you that if you do plan ahead, what that gives you is fans will realize very quickly that there's a coherence in the universe and the universe yeah. was, was uh, has depth and breadth. And this is what I think builds fan bases um, in the long run. If you look at a game of Thrones, like who would have thought that a, a TV series about ice zombies and, and dragons would be, you know, that popular, uh, you know, my mom watches game of Thrones. I mean, who would yeah. have ever thought I wouldn't like, but, but the thing is because it was created out of a robust world, the, the fan base, the strong core fan base was there and they became the evangelists and they're the ones that essentially converted all of the other strata of less and, le and like more and more mainstream audiences so I, I do believe that if you do it in advance and you do it right, it, it, it increases your chances of, of gaining momentum through time. It, it's kind of the rush of creativity because like I, I wrote a novel. I've had the experience of you sit there for a year or two years at, or more mm -hmm. 
and just churn this out and you really work on these characters and you don't know until you send it out to agents if you've mm-hmm. written something that everyone's going to like or if you're absolutely crazy. Maybe you spent all that yep. time <laughs> just talking to yourself and no one likes anything <laughs> you've done and it doesn't even make sense. And that, that could have gone that way with mm-hmm. Game of Thrones. I mean, he had this incredibly elaborate world and it could have been what is this gibberish or it could have been this is fantastic, mm-hmm. this completely speaks to me. I mean, that is mm-hmm. that is really such a thrilling part of creation. Yeah, um, absolutely. And who knows? Nobody knows. I mean, look, uh, I mean, everybody knows the story of uh, Stephen King, right? How many, how many times he was rejected? Um, yeah. You know, uh, same thing with, uh, you know, Game of Thrones took a long time to gain traction. I mean, I remember my friends, like when I was like years back, when the first one were coming out, I had friends that swore by Game of Thrones. For me, it was just too hardcore. It was just too depressing. I like heroic fantasy a lot more than than this very hardcore fantasy. But you know what? Because it was robust and because it was authentic and it was, um, you know, he took chances. I think that it does, with time, help you. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You're working now with the founder of Cirque du Soleil. Mm -hmm. Uh, what is that collaboration like? That must be absolutely amazing. It is. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, without, without uh, Guy, uh, I, I don't see how I could have, I could have, uh, you know, built Reflector, at least not with the traction and the speed that, that it was done. So um, we actually started working together. When I, I left Ubisoft to found Reflector, we started working together on something else completely different. And, uh, and um, it's through that collaboration we really got along very well. It's through that collaboration that uh, he, he came to at one point to ask me, like, well, what is this project that you're working on? What is this reflector? And when I, I essentially pitched it to him, uh, he essentially told me, look, I, I'd, like to be, I'd like to come in as partners with you on this, and, uh, and uh, maybe you could help me on other projects. And so for, for about two years, we, we collaborated on a lot of different projects together uh, that, that are in development. And at the same time, I sort of built up Reflector. And um, today, I'm, I'm focusing a lot more on Reflector. Uh, I'm still on the executive board of, of you know, Yee's Holding, uh, yeah. but it's, it's gotten more to sort of just the executive, like sort of st- strategic like uh, level. Uh, but yeah, that, that collaboration is fantastic. I, I think that, um, you know, Yee has been for, for the past years a mentor to me. It's somebody that I respect tremendously. Um, he, he is a creative visionary. And yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so uh, it, it's, uh, it's a privilege for me to, to have access to somebody like that. Um, you know, somebody that I can call a mentor and a friend. And you're in Montreal. You're from Montreal, right? You're Portuguese, um, Canadian? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so you, you moved to Montreal at a very young age. It seems mm-hmm. like a city that's just absolutely exploding creatively right now. The number of sound stages that are expanding in Montreal the number of opportunities. Can you just talk about what the sort of energy is like? It feels like, you know, being in Seattle at the start of grunge or something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good analogy. Uh, Montreal is, um, is a very special town. I think there's a lot of different strange, um, not coincidences, but, but uh, strange meetings of, uh, or occurrences that sort of all converge in Montreal that make it special. Uh, the fact that it, it's uh, it's a bilingual city, um, it is it is a, a city where French and English intermingle. You know, we always, jokingly, everybody in in uh, Montreal, we say that we don't say that we speak French or English. We 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 say that we speak Franglish. Uh, <laughs> people move from one language to the other, and I think that 
um, brings in, I mean, I think it, it collides two different ways of seeing the world and two different ways of thinking. And I think that if you think about it, creativity is, is just that. Creativity is taking two things that are dissociated and you finding a unique link between these two things, these two elements. You're the one that finds that thing that connects them. So the more, um, the more polar opposites you're exposed to, the higher the chances are for you to find these links and for you to be creative. So I think that the colliding of those two cultures in Montreal certainly helps uh, give it its unique uh, feel. Um, and as Montreal is also a university uh, town, uh, oh, yeah. much like uh, Boston. So the idea of having these large universities um, in, in a relatively small town, I think yeah. increases the percentage of those bright young people that are, have new ideas and have new ways of seeing the world combine that with, you know, and all of the different hundreds of cultures, you know, that come uh, from all over the world to be in these universities, combine that with the, uh, with the specific nature of the bilingual nature of, and, and dual culture nature of Montreal. And then you have something that I think it, it's sort of like a Petri dish for, uh, for creativity and for, uh, and for um, novel ways of thinking, I guess. Yeah. I forgot that my Skype says I'm in Boston. I'm totally, you've totally blown up my spot. That's okay. <laughs> um, this is so fascinating. I, I love talking about this. Is there anything that we should have covered that we didn't? I mean, since, I'm, since I am like a video game neophyte, I feel like there's probably a lot of things that people listening to this are going, why didn't you ask this? So is there, is there anything that I really should have asked? No, no nothing that comes to mind because actually I, I, I think the opposite because you are in your fights, I think you ask the right questions that, that, uh, you know, that, that come from, um, I think that it's, it's a lot broader. And I think that those are probably the questions that people that aren't versed in the video game world will, would have wanted asked. So no, I like nothing that pops to mind. I, I thought you were actually super thorough that the questions were, were on point. It was, um, yeah, it's great. Okay, well, I'll I'll cut that part out then. But <laughs> thank you. Um, yeah. I really I really appreciate it. It's such an honor to talk to you, and I loved love the story that you wrote for us. Um, I'm super glad Dennis set that up because oh, thank you, know, you so much. Th- this is a blind spot for me, and you really kind of opened my whole way of thinking about everything, which doesn't happen that often. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. It was it was really a pleasure to write it. I I, I had a lot of fun writing that article actually. Oh, excellent. Well. You know, I think I think it showed, and I definitely loved reading it, and I just want to know other people will too. Oh, thank you so much. As you can hear, dear listener, I actually didn't cut the part where Alexandre Amancio said nice things to me, because every day, give yourself a present. In the words of Dale Cooper, every day, give yourself a present. It might be pie, it might be a nice walk with the birds that are chirping. Um, Or maybe the present you give yourself is sending an email to tim.molloy at moviemaker.com. Why is that a present for you? Um, Because if you're involved in an indie project of any kind that could just kind of use a boost right now, could use some media attention, um, some promotion online, now's the time more than ever that we really want to do that. So please uh, hit us up, send an email. We'd, we'd love to promote the good work that you're doing, especially if it's raising all boats, especially if you're doing something that's also helping other indies who are in, the, in a tough situation right now. Um, we're here. We'd like, to, we'd like to help in any way we can. 
I hope we'll see you back here Friday because our guest is Mark Myers, the director of We Summon the Darkness, a really fun movie. Uh, he's also the director of My Friend Dahmer. Not as fun, I guess, but very good. So, see you Friday. Mark Myers, thank you very much to our guest this week, Alexandre Amancio. We're only interviewing guests from now on whose first and last names start with the same letter. So, sorry everybody else. Uh, See you Friday. Thanks.